Yeah. So it's, a, it's an amazing thing how, if, if, if you're not aware, and there's lots of reasons why you might not be, but there's, there's something going on um, pretty much every week here, and, uh, and especially some weeks, and especially during the summer, but this is one of the craziest weeks of the summers when we host camp in the city. It, it is a, it's an amazing thing to watch that happen here, and um, it's, it's, we've, we as a church, um, I personally, but we as a church are not big fans of empty church buildings, and so um, we love that, it's, that they're being used all the time. You come out here almost any time. Now, there, you, you might hit and miss, but there are people here doing all kinds of stuff all the time, and, and it's, a, it's a wonderful blessing, and to get to invest in these kids, I'm telling you this, this especially during the summer, it is, it is one kid event, and especially um, kid opportunities for um, kids who don't have uh, moms and dads at home and that kind of stuff all summer, and, uh, and that's, that's an exciting thing for us, and it's a big part of why we exist here, and so <clears throat> we love partnering with Pine Cove for the, for the camp in the city stuff, and I actually... Where I was during camp in the city here, I was at a different Pine Cove camp speaking at a family camp, and I know some of you were praying for me, and um, it was, it's an amazing thing to watch how broken our families are and to be reminded of just how broken most Christian families are, and uh, just, just a few little small decisions away from, uh, from falling apart. And so um, just, it encouraged me to, uh, to throw out a reminder this week, if you're, if you're facing challenges in your marriage, and if your marriage is, is facing really tough stuff, make sure that you're getting good help from friends and, and pastors and counselors and, and uh, family and all the people who you need to. This is a vital, vital part of our testimony is how far we're willing to go to have great marriages. So just want to encourage you on that. And um, as we're jumping back into um, John chapter 5, um, it was, it's a little weird for me, honestly. I missed one week, and it feels like, I, to me, it feels like I've been gone for a month and, uh, or longer, and, um, and especially since I've been teaching almost every day this week, but to a different, on a different topic, I taught through the book of Ephesians this week. And, uh, and so to teach the book of Ephesians in about six hours or so, and then to come back and jump into the next chapter of John, I will honestly tell you is a little bit uh, disorienting. And so, um, so hopefully it won't be too bad this morning. We're looking at John chapter 5, starting in verse... Um, I'm just going to start back in verse 18. So last week, Paul pointed out um, that the purpose of the gospel of John, we know from John himself, um, is that we might believe that Jesus is God and, having, and, and believing have eternal life. That is, that's the reason John exists. That's the reason the book exists. That's the reason he chose the stories that he did, the, the accounts that he did, the things that he did um, to put into this book. Obviously, he traveled with Jesus for as, as much as three years of his life. And so you write down your journal, your three-year journal, it's longer than 21, 22 chapters. It's, I mean, it's, it's 21, 21 chapters. It's, 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 it's going to be a lot longer than that. And so he's just focusing attention on the basic stuff that's meant to communicate what he wants communicated. And so that's where we are. This is as clear an expression of the mission of us as a church, of the mission of us as believers. But he, he states clearly, in case you have any question, why is the book of John what it is? We now know. So in verse 18, um, we, get, we just had the story of the man healed at Bethesda on the Sabbath. That's infuriating to some of the religious leaders at the time that Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath. Their, their priorities are out of whack. It's good that they honor the Sabbath, but they're honoring the Sabbath as something more than what the Sabbath is intended to be, more than God intended for the Sabbath to be. They've now gotten their priorities out of order. Um, they're now worshiping the things that are meant to encourage them to worship. It's kind of like if we worshiped the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. Uh, we've talked about that before. The Bible teaches us who we worship. 
Um, we, we, honor this, we honor scriptures as come, having come from God, but we don't, we don't worship them. Um, we don't worship the church. We don't, we don't worship staff at the church. We don't worship the idea of being a paid Christian or church staff. We don't, we don't worship these things. All we worship is God and God alone. And that's, this is the only person who we worship. So understanding him and diving into that, and we're going to be doing that in the next two weeks as we're going to cover just these 10 verses in the next two weeks uh, because there's some important doctrine to teach in the midst of this that I'm going to be spending time doing. So, um, so not only was he healing people on the Sabbath, verse 18, breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So this is a fascinating little situation. He was claiming to be equal to God. That's not a misunderstanding on their part. They're, they're correctly interpreting Jesus' teaching. He was declaring himself to be equal with God, which, of course, they couldn't handle. Um, the evidence of the miracles was indicating that Jesus was more than just a mere teacher. There was something else going on. But they weren't, certainly weren't prepared to accept that he was God. And that's a huge step. He's claiming to be equal with God. We're going to see he's going to claim to be God before we get done with the book of John. And, and with absolute clarity, he's going to declare himself to be God. Um, anytime you hear anyone say, as I've heard many of the atheists and others who I've discussed with say, well, God, Jesus never claims to be God, that's just completely erroneous. He absolutely, incredibly clearly claims to be God. He just doesn't do it in English, which of course he wouldn't. English was not yet a language when Jesus was walking on the planet. He doesn't speak it to you in American. Of course not. America wasn't a nation when Jesus was walking on the planet. And so the fact that he doesn't say it the way, same exact way we would say it is irrelevant. He says it in such clarity at his time, in his culture, in his language, that immediately he is declared guilty of blasphemy and deserving of death. Well, that would be a strange thing to declare about somebody if they didn't commit blasphemy. But he does. Absolutely clearly, he's going to, it, it's going to escalate. He's going to give more and more hints to his divinity and then eventually, he's just going to say it in as clear a way as he possibly can. <clears throat> so we're looking at, I want us to lay the groundwork um, so for that day to come when we get to that place. And so the next couple of weeks is going to be laying a lot of groundwork as we go through these verses. Um, by chapters 8 through 10, it will be crystal clear that he was claiming to be God. Now, Many of you familiar are familiar with the, um, with the, the argument that C.S. Lewis made famous, although it predates him, called the Lord Liar Lunatic Argument. Okay? In, in this argument, Lewis, Lewis clarifies for us that one of the things we're not allowed to believe is that Jesus was merely a great teacher. He doesn't leave that option for us. So if you say like, well, you know, he may be not the son of God, but... I mean, at least he was a great moral teacher. He was like, you know, Martin Luther or, or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or, or Gandhi or, or the Buddha. Or, he, was, he wasn't God, but he was, he was a moral leader of his age. He was a good moral leader. And, and what, what uh, C.S. Lewis makes abundantly clear is this. Jesus Christ did not leave us the option of thinking of him as merely a great moral leader. That's the one thing you can't believe about him. Because here's the deal. He claims unequivocally to be God. If someone claims to be God, there's only three options, really. One is, of course, that they're God. That one's really rare. That one's, that one's rarely the correct answer, okay? 
Um, in the psychological world, we regularly run into people who claim to be God. So far, I've not, that one's not been the right one. Okay. Then you have, for some people, they are, they're nuts. I mean, they're just, they're strictly straight out delusional. It's not their fault. The wiring is bad. The chemistry is bad. They're just, they're just nuts. They're nutcase. They, they are truly, they are lunatic in that, in the end that they just have no connection to reality and have reached some conclusion somewhere along the way that they themselves are God. I had a good friend who was a social worker who said one of the greatest quandaries of her life was having a man sitting in her office who was Jesus Christ. He was 100% convinced he was Jesus Christ. He was, he was and, and she, she said every time this happened, she would be like, well, I mean, I guess we need some miracles or something. I mean, let's, let's start cranking out the miracles so I can start believing in what you say. She said that one of the greatest, the, the har- biggest moments of her life, one of the hardest moments of her life was having a man sitting in her office who was Jesus Christ getting called out into the foyer because there was a man in the foyer who was Jesus Christ. <laughs> and she said the decision in her mind at that moment was, do I introduce these two? Like, what, what would be the consequences of introducing these two to each other? Like, and wrestling through that decision. You can believe that you are God and just be flat wrong because you've got a mental disorder that leads you to believe something that isn't true, as we've talked about. That's just a psychological state. Any of us could be there under the right situations. We could get the right disease or get hit in the head in the right place and, and come to that conclusion. That's one possibility that Jesus Christ of Nazareth wandering around on earth was just a lunatic claiming to be Yahweh, claiming to be the God of the Jews. That's an option. There's reasons not to buy into that option, but that's a legitimate one. Another one is that he's a con artist. That Jesus is, is a, he's just a, a tyrannical person, a, a cult leader who's trying to gain something from his claim to be God. This is how he's going to get lots of wives, or this is how he's going to make lots of money, or this is how he's going to have a compound, or this is how he's going to do whatever. Like that that's, that that's why he was claiming to be God. But notice, if, you're, if you actually are the Lord, if you actually are God, then you are a good moral leader, but you are not merely a good moral leader. So if we take Lord, good moral leader, that's merely a good moral leader is not sufficient. If he's a lunatic, then he's not a good moral leader. Crazy people don't make good moral leaders. They lead people all over the map if they, people follow them. If he's a con artist, if he's a liar, then he's not a good moral leader. So saying he is merely a good moral teacher or a good moral leader is not an option. So if you've stopped there and you've said, I really like Jesus' teaching, I think he's a great moral leader, I've got a lot to learn from him, understand, then you're going to have to accept that he is also God in order to move forward. Logic dictates that we understand this. And there's a lot of discussion about this, this argument, and yet I have found it to still continue to be pretty much watertight. Um, it is really hard to come up with. And there's really no good evidence that Jesus was a lunatic. His life is well, way, way too organized for him to be someone who has a mental disability. He is able to draw people under these conditions for long periods of time. Those things just seem incredibly unlikely. There's no good evidence that Jesus has any type of mental instability. He's able to engage with each moment in reality as it is very effectively and with great insight. He doesn't seem confused and his, and, his, and his his understandings don't waver throughout his lifetime. The idea of being a con artist makes essentially no sense. 
Um, Jesus doesn't get any wives out of the deal. He doesn't get any money out of the deal. In fact, what it gets him is killed. And so usually at some point along the way when the con artist is dying, um, if they have any say in the matter, they catch on and they say like, yep, sorry, I was just kidding. And that tends to be what happens. So, um, or they find ways for everybody else to die but them. Um, we see examples of that all through history. Um, that's the Lord, liar, lunatic argument. We are left with a Jesus who is going to claim to be God. And really the only rational stance to accept based on what we have about him is, is in fact that apparently that's true. We're going to talk some more about this though. So God, even if separate from the Father, equal to the Father, clearly he did not, they didn't interpret Jesus' claims of the son, being son of the Father as being theologically insignificant. The, the religious leaders and philosophers of his time understood that there's an importance to what he's saying with this. They just don't understand it. They understood it was a reality what he was claiming. They just also thought it was a serious problem. Let me tell you why. Um, there's a great um, book by Cahill called The Gift of the Jews that came out a few years ago. The Gift of the Jews is, is a real simple, I'll summarize it for you, and then you still want to read it, it's great, but you'll have the basics. Understand that throughout human history, religions were very much so tribal. They're very much so based on a certain person or personage, um, a population. Most, most ancient people's name for human means human, the name they call themselves. So if you're the, if you're the Dakota people, the word Dakota means human, and the name for all others from Dakota means less than human. That's where you get names like Jew and Gentile. You have the Jews, and you have everyone else. Everyone else is the same related to your population. This is how every population kind of existed for most of human history. And on top of that, each little population had their own little religions. It's developed usually slowly from old tribal religions or some charismatic leader stepping forward or something like that. That's where they came from. And so there's two, two paths for that, and I'll quickly tell you. One of them is the path of what's called totems, which is they begin to find things in themselves they admire, like courage. And then they find an animal or a symbol that represents that trait, like a lion, or a bear, or an eagle. And so then they begin to carve symbols of this animal to represent this trait, and they begin to worship this animal because of its trait that they actually pulled from themselves. This is where most religions come from. This is why you have millions upon millions of Hindu gods. All these little gods that are all based on very narrower and narrower and narrower ideas. Then you have the gods that are based on superstitions, like that you say, hey, um, we, need to, we, need to, we, we did something this year and our sheep population was a lot healthier this year, therefore that must somehow represent some kind of god. The Greeks became the ultimate at this. Is that the Greeks, eventually when the Greeks won a battle and they, couldn't, they didn't know which god to give credit to, they started putting out a bunch of statues, they sent out a whole bunch of sheep, and wherever the sheep laid down, they then slaughtered that sheep and set up a monument there to the unknown god. Um, this was, this was a, whichever God it was that just helped us, we don't know which one, so we're just going to kind of cover our bases here and go with someone who apparently helped us, we don't know who, so we're going it, to, it's intriguing. How many of you have, have been into, like, to Athens? A few of you have been there, and you've, you've been up in the, the uh, Parthenon up there? Parthenon, right? 
Boy, I mix up Parthenon and Pantheon every time. So Parthenon up there. And so, and you go up there and it's just beautiful. Like it's, it's this beautiful hilltop and there's just a few little sculptures around and it's all this beautiful white marble. And, and our guide, I mean, it's just so cool. And our guide was explaining to us, he was like, you see these niches on the ground? These little, there's these little, about this big, little brick-sized niches on the ground. And they are every, I mean, every two or three steps, there's a little niche. And you're like, yeah, boy, there, oh my gosh, those things are everywhere. And the guide said, there used to be a statue standing there. That niche is where they would sit the statue into the, and I was like, that, that would not be pretty. Like, like doing this between the statues up here, like would be weird. I mean, if there were statues every, you mean, you mean every, like this whole thing was just blanketed and there were just narrow paths between the statues. That would be, that would be weird. And then, I hate to do this to you for those of you who don't know this. And then to discover that the, the Parthenon itself, they've discovered the paint fragments. Y'all have heard this, the paint fragments on the... Turns out the Greeks didn't have beautiful white marble things. The Parthenon was a weird pale gold and baby blue color. It was all painted. They painted all of those statues and they tend to like peaches and blues and yellows and golds. I mean, it, it would have looked like a, a, um, a yard sale exploded on the top of the Parthenon like in, in central Texas or something, like just, just the worst colors imaginable stuccoed onto all of this. I was totally disappointed by all this thing. We, we, we love it for this, this austere beauty that it has. And that's not what they were looking at. They had glammed this sucker up. I mean, it was bling all over the place. And the thought of going up there and being like, yeah, this does not inspire anything to me except maybe a little bit of nausea. I mean, just like uh, there was in, in Rome, there was one statue that still had the paint on it um, that they had of a centurion. And it, it was reds and peach and yellows. And it was just, it was awful. Like anyway, so this is the two different ways you get religions. And, and so here's what happens. So my culture, let's say, so my town um, we have a really beautiful, fresh spring water in my town. And so our sheep do super well. Our sheep are very, very healthy. Clearly, we have an awesome sheep God. Okay? A few villages over, Paul has a village. And, and Paul, they have, a, they have found a copper mine near Paul's property. And so, so he can make weapons out of copper, and we're making ours still out of stone. And so Paul's war God is... is way better than my war god, even though my sheep god is way better than his sheep god. So what happens is, at some point, Paul decides, you know what, our sheep are just not doing well. I mean, we have these sickly sheep, and they never reproduce very well, and Chris has got that great sheep god over there, and those great sheep. We don't have the resources to continue doing this unless we use our strengths which is our war god. And so Paul's war god decides for some reason that he's offended by my war god and declares war on my war god. And so Paul's tribe comes over with their, their better weapons and their war god defeats my war god and they take my sheep god. And here's how pantheons were created. Multiple gods and levels of gods. And so now he still has a sheep god, but his sheep god becomes the vice sheep god to my CEO sheep god because my, my sheep God's better, my war God becomes his kind of vice or maybe a little ways down war God under his head war God. And now he's doubled his land and now he's got good sheep and, and he's got more property and all of a sudden the village down the road that has a really good tomato God starts looking like maybe they need to, some help from his war God too, right? 
And so this is what happens. This is why, if it helps you understand the book of Daniel, then the book of Daniel, you have this beautiful example of the, the, the Babylonians who had many, many, many gods. And at one point, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. Two things happen. First, he sees the three Hebrew children saved from the fiery furnace. And he calls his priests together and he says, it is now right to worship the God of the Jews. They, 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 lack, they don't have statues. We don't understand this. They don't have statues. But man, their God can save. Man, can he save. So we need to go put a plaque in the room full of gods that says Yahweh saves. And now when somebody wants to be saved, now when they want war, Yahweh's not great at war in our opinion because we conquered them. But, but man, if you want to be saved, you need to go, you need to go pray to their God, Yahweh, because he can save you. A little while later, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by God, and somehow he identifies it as Yahweh who humbles him. And so he adds another plaque under the name Yahweh. Yahweh saves. No God can save like this God. And the next plaque hanging below that says, and no God can humble like this God. So it makes sense that generations later, years later, when Darius puts Daniel in the lion's den, and Daniel goes down the lion's den, and, Daniel, and Darius goes back to the same pantheon of gods that he just conquered from the Babylonians and added his Persian gods to it. And he goes in there and says, let me find Daniel's God, the one he prays to every day. What can he do? What does he do well? Oh, look, he saves. So the next morning he comes out to Daniel. Daniel, in fact, was your God able to save you? And Daniel says, you know he did. You know what? It's a good thing for us to worship your God when we're talking about saving. That's as, as weird as all of that is, the, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar comes to the understanding of two things about Yahweh, only, maybe only two, but two things for sure, he can, he can humble you and he can save you. That's not bad theology. If you only know two things about Yahweh, those aren't two bad ones to know. He can humble you, but he can save you, or and he can save you. Now here's what happens. And the gift of the Jews, Cahill tells us, this is when, somewhere in this midst of the, all this mess is when Abraham comes along and says, no, no, Yahweh's not our God. We are his people. It doesn't work the way it works for the rest of you, where this is our war God and we tell him what to do, and this is our sheep God, and this is our tomato God. In fact, this is not a something God. This is the God. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of king. He's the God of gods. See, you don't know this yet, Babylonians, but your gods actually all report to Yahweh. Wait, our God reports to your God? No, not our God. We're his people. He's the God over everybody. See, there's just one of him. And it turns out there's just one true God. And everything else we worship, whether it has spiritual power or not, is, is, is a little G God. It's just kind of a God-let. It's a God-ish there's really only one God, and all the rest of them end up, and it turns out they all report to him. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when he wants to teach his people a lesson, he may use your people to do it. He may use your gods to do it. This is new. No one had done this before. A few thousand years before Jesus Christ, Abraham came forward with this understanding and said, no, no, it turns out there's only one, and he's over all of us. And his people began to proclaim this. No, no, there's just one God. It turns out there's only one. He's chosen us to tell you this. That doesn't actually make us all that special. It really kind of just makes us a target. But 
We're, we're just telling you, like, this is the truth of the matter, and we're supposed to live this out. And then we get enslaved, and we grow to a larger nation, and then Moses comes along and says, actually, there's just one Pharaoh. There's only one God, and I've learned this now. There's only one God. And Pharaoh says, really? Well, let's pit your one God against all the gods of Egypt. And that's exactly what happens. If you've been confused by the, by the plagues of Egypt, now you'll understand them better in that what they are is they are systematically Yahweh humbling the gods of Egypt one after another after another. He pits himself against them and he shuts them down. That's why darkness, darkness was always weird to me as a kid being like, okay, boils, that sounds bad. Uh, flies and gnats, not so. Hail mixed with fire, that sounds really bad. Darkness sounds like a nap, right? What's the big deal with darkness? But, but see, Ra was the god of the sun. He was the god of light. He was the chief god in the Egyptian pantheon. And so for God second to last to say, like, now watch me turn Ra off like a light switch. He has no power. He only shines because I dictate that he can. He has no power over me. I am the god over your god, Ra, and I will make it so dark you will feel it against your skin. I don't know what that means, but that scares me when I read that in the Exodus. You will feel darkness, you can feel. That is darkness. I'm going to shut it all down. We're turning off the lights for a little while so I can show you I'm God and Ra is not. That's, the, that's those things through there. And notice, then God does the whole thing where he saves the, the eldest child, but only of people who obey, whether Egyptian or Jew. It requires obedience, Egyptian or Jew. Um, and then when, he, when they obey, he saves. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing story, and you understand it from that perspective. I want you to get that, because I want you to understand how important the fact that God is one was to the Jewish people. It set them apart from everybody else. It got them slaughtered generation after generation after generation. Our God is one. That's where Jesus showed up into that faith, one God. And understand, we are, we are a reasonable faith. Christianity is a reasonable faith. I know not all people who claim the title of Christianity claim this, but it is, it is a standard of Christianity. We do not believe in superstitious mumbo-jumbo. If you've been taught any of the stuff, that, the doctrines of Christianity, as though they're just kind of superstitious and they're just kind of magical, don't buy it. That's not accurate. That is not who we are, and it's not necessary. We may not understand everything, but that's just part of being human. It is a foundational understanding of all sources of knowledge and all paths of study, from revelation to empirical evidence and science, that we don't know everything. That is agreed upon by all humans, should be agreed upon by all humans, no matter what the area of study is, is that we don't know everything. That's not about being Christian. That's not about being religious. That's not about being scientific. That is being human. We don't know everything. We can all agree on that. Um, that's not saying that we know nothing. To say I don't know everything is not the same thing as saying I don't know anything. We do know some things. And none of the things that we believe or are asked to accept in Christianity are irrational. Just so you know, you can be comforted by that. There may be mysteries, but my wife is a mystery to me sometimes. That doesn't mean she's irrational. In fact, husbands, I wouldn't throw that word around at all, right? I would just stay away from that entirely. 
That is a, that's not the same thing. For something to be or someone to, of course people are mysterious to us. We are, we are very deep, complicated beings. It would take forever to get to know one of us completely, especially if we kept living. How much more so would be the case with the universe? How long would it take to know an almost infinite universe? Well, it would take essentially forever. And so, of course, there's always more to learn. More is revealed to us. Here is a truth that is revealed by Scripture and logic. There is only one God. There is a God, and there's only one of Him. That's necessary. Arguably the oldest of all monotheistic faiths, the Jewish roots of Christianity, take by this stance. It is not possible for there to be more than one God. You cannot have more than one omni-anything. Omni means all. Omnipresent. All pre- omnipowerful, omnipotent. You can't have two omnipotent beings. It's not possible. They would cancel each other out at some level. They couldn't arm wrestle each other. This is, you can't have two omnipotents. It's not logically possible to have multiple omnipotents or omniscience. Neither one could keep a secret from the other one. They would all know all things at all times. That would be logically incoherent. But the omnipotent one is just unfeasible. It's, it's impossible to have two omnipotent beings. One of them would tell the other one no, and then the other one would no longer be omnipotent. That's how that would work. You can't cancel each other out like that. It is logically incoherent to believe that there is more than one God. That, that is God. You can have lots of little godlets like we talked about. Sure, you can have that. But there must be only one God, a God, the God. There was a great and really humorous um, Dean Koontz book that I read years and years ago in which there's a, one of the main characters is convinced that, that the source of human life is aliens. And, uh, and the, kind of the comedy in the whole book is that there's others who are they're Christians in the book and they're, they're, they keep running into this difference of opinion as to whether or not God is the source of life or aliens is a source of life. And you get all the way into the book and the main bad guy is in the process of dying, ironically, at the hands of an alien. And so and the alien walks up to him, and which apparently speaks English, and the, and the, and the guy says, um, I knew you existed. I knew you were, that you were real. I knew that you were the source of humanity. And the alien, I'm not kidding, this is what happens in the book, kneels down in front of him and says like, yeah, but who's the source of the aliens? That's kind of how the book ends. Like it's meant to be like a, anyway. So like it turns out you still need a God. Even if you've got really smart aliens, you still need someone to create the really smart aliens. You keep regressing back there. This is also the basic teaching of, of, of Hebrew understanding. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. This is it. There's just one. Jesus repeats this verse in Mark 12.29 and emphasizes that this is the foremost understanding, the foremost commandment. James Jesus' half-brother makes it clear that that basic belief in God being one is a basic belief. It's so basic, even demons know it. James 2.19, you believe that God is one. Good, you do well. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. That's how fundamental it is that God is one. Even demons know this one. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. This is first century Christianity. The Apostle Paul, with his understanding of who Jesus Christ was, is still saying there is no God but one. And of course, the theological gospel that we are in the midst of studying, the book of John, makes it clear at the beginning, which Paul taught months ago, the Word was God. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. There's not the Word was a new God. There are translations that say the Word was a God. That is not a good translation. They are not being honest with the Greek there. Um, that is, that's just not really an option. Um, there's language there that makes it very clear that what's being talked about. Um, they are taking, because there is a word missing, they're taking that and adding in a word. So a word not being there should not be really good strength for adding in a different word. Um, anyway, we won't go into that. There's a lot we could study there, and maybe that'll be a Wednesday night conversation sometime. So John 17, 3 is going to say when we get there, it says it now, but we're not going to get there for a while. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So now, back to John 5. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. What one does, the other does. What the Son does, the Father does. What the Father does, the Son does. Jesus is starting to teach them about this idea that we come eventually to call the Trinity. But understand, Jesus is living in a world where the, only, where, where the most fundamental belief that has set them apart for centuries from every other people is that there is only one God. And Jesus is going to have to begin to give hints and explanation as to why it is possible that there is only one God and he is the Father and yet Jesus Christ is God. So we are actually going to be this week and next week looking at the concept of the Trinity in detail as we go through these 10 verses. Um, I, I know that not, that's not often done um, that we don't, that because this is, for so many people, this is doctrinally so challenging or it feels so academic for people. But this is an important understanding of Christianity. This is one of the few things that sets Christianity truly apart from the non-versions of Christianity, from the versions of Christianity that are created uh, meant to answer other questions. And by the way, it's not just academic. I thought for years it was just academic, too. Um, and now I understand it, it's not at all merely academic. It's vital teaching. Um, in order for God to have the character we claim he has, it's important that there is more than one person in God. Um, so they live in a community of love and communication. Even in Jesus' time on earth, God was showing Jesus things. Um, look at verse um, 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show you so that you may marvel. Even in Jesus' time. So Jesus, God is showing Jesus things. Jesus is experiencing life as a human being. Which means though God, he is experiencing life as a human. Therefore, he is learning things as a human. He's understanding things as a human. New, new concepts are coming to him. Not in any way except for the fact that he's experiencing life as humans. And so humans have to learn and grow. We learn things like obedience. And the Bible says he learned obedience. That we grow in favor and in wisdom. And the Bible says that Jesus grew in favor and in wisdom. These are things that were happening to Jesus. He was experiencing life as a human. And Jesus says, you think these healings that you've seen recently are impressive? You think me healing the man at Bethesda was impressive? You think me doing the things that I've done so far, miracles are impressive? You're able to be impressed by those? Man, just wait. Verse 21, for the Father raises the dead 
and gives them life. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So this is, this is, this is for us challenging for his Jewish audience. And that's who he's speaking to. He's speaking maybe to people, the very, some of the very Pharisees who were concerned with him. It says he began to teach them. So that may have been the very, some of the very religious leaders. This is, this is going to be a problem. They're going to have a real hard time with all this. Just We struggle with it, but they're going to have a really hard time with it. Verse 27 is going to explain why Jesus is given the responsibility to judge. We'll get there next week. But for now, to consider the idea of honor, to express worth, very similar concept to worship. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. This is, this is already very close to blasphemy of Jesus Christ as not God. To say to honor the Son in the same sentence with honoring the Father is problematic. You don't share worship in the Jewish faith. You don't share worship between any two. You worship God and God alone. That's it. We have whole, we have whole commandments of the Ten Commandments about this. A very basic idea. You don't worship anyone with God. You have no other gods before him, and you do not honor any idols or gods alongside of him. But look at this passage in Revelation 5. Man, this is, this is good stuff right here. Revelation 5. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out unto the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now listen, this is quite literally the image that God gives John, the same John who wrote the book of John, an image, a vision of the throne room of God himself. God himself in this image and this vision is sitting on the throne. And in the presence of Almighty God, the elders who have worshipped no one but God, the, the creatures or whatever they are, they fall down before the Lamb in the presence of God. This has to be God. The Lamb has to be God. So we're going to have to figure out how to put those together, but that is the deal. And listen to what they sing with this new song. Worthy are you. That's baseline. Same concepts as worship. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. <clears throat> and I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, the elders, the voices of many angels. Numbering myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it only gets bigger. The crescendo grows. Then it's not just the angelic beings. Then it's the entirety of, the, of, of creation is now worshiping this lamb in God's presence. Only okay if this lamb is God. Otherwise, not cool. You don't do that. So it's, we're going to have to work out <clears throat> how these can both be true. How can you have God the Father, <clears throat> an independent being, and God the Son, 
an independent being, both God. You might think, well, that's, that's the problem, right? That's the challenge. These are the words spoken to a group of Jewish men, including religious leaders. They're going to have to start wrapping their brains around this idea. And it's going to create problems for them. And even his disciples are going to struggle with it. The early church wrestled with this concept. Understanding God as one and what to do with passages like this. The fact that Jesus was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Dealing with the fact that the wise men worshipped him. The language in Matthew, worshipped him. Don't do that. That he's called the Son of God. That he calls himself I Am. That he's called the Son of Man, which is a prophetic uh, prophecy from Daniel about God. That Jesus Christ in Isaiah is referred to as the Eternal Father and Mighty God. We know from John 1 what John thinks. John thinks that Jesus is... God alongside God, somehow. What does Peter think? 2 Peter 1.1 says, To those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Peter, after spending his time with Jesus, was convinced Jesus was God. How about Paul? Romans 9.5, To them among the patriarchs, and from them by human descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So even though you'll hear people sometimes say, like, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Maybe the Trinity is not a necessary thing. Well, you've got a problem then. Because Paul also says in Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Paul refers to Jesus Christ as his Savior and God. How about Jesus? Okay, sneak preview. Jesus says in 8... John 8, 58 and 59, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is the Jewish way of claiming to be God. And by the way, they know that because therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. They didn't do that because you know, they didn't like his haircut. They did it because he had just claimed to be God, and they knew that. These teachings and many others caused the early theologians among Christians to begin to wonder at the nature and essence of Jesus Christ, and by the way, the Holy Spirit. This was understanding how important it is that God is one. It is logically and scripturally a necessity. And yet, it is scripturally necessary to believe that Jesus Christ is God. How is that possible? That's where we'll jump into next week. But I want you to hear, and if you want to read, if it's interesting to you, the concept of logical coherency or, or rationality or whatever, um, I won't have time to get into it in these two Sundays, but on the, the website where I publish articles um, at chrismleg.com, I have an article about, is it rational to believe that God is a trinity? Um, and so if that kind of thing interests you, you can look that up and read it have, and, and get more detail about that part of the question. But I will tell you, uh, my, my conclusion is going to be that it is, obviously. So here's what I would say. We, we get to worship a God as he is, not as we want him to be. Um, as he reveals himself. And, and if it's still a mystery to us and we're done, for many of us, a mystery. Um, and it will always be a little bit of a mystery because God is unique. The same way that we're mysteries to one another. You could say, well, Chris is like so-and-so, or he's like this, or he's like that, or he's kind of like this, or kind of like that. But in the end, all the analogies are going to fail, right? Because there's only one of me. 
We can have analogies about God. God is three in one like this, or God is three in one like that. But in the end, there's only one of him. And so all the analogies are going to fail. They won't be exactly right. We'll talk about that next week. And maybe you've grown up with that. But I want you to hear, this is a, Jesus is spending a lot of time here in John 5. And he's going to do it in a few more places to explain the idea that he is God. And so for us to accept that and get to accept that he is God and maybe gain a little understanding of that because of what he's saying here, what the Father says he does. What kind of a God humbles himself? What kind of a God submits? What kind of a God serves? What kind of a God sacrifices? This is a different kind of God than the one we would have come up with on our own. So let's worship him as he is. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Thank you that you sent your son and that we have the opportunity also to worship him. Thank you, Father, that that little slain lamb will be the one who is fit to open the judgment when we're all to be judged, that he's the only one fit for that. Thank you, Lord, that you love us enough that you came to earth, that you sent your son to experience life as a human being, making your judgment that much more just, making the truth of who you are that much more relatable for us. God, we worship you that you have done this this way and that it makes sense that you would. Thank you, Father, that you have given us the opportunity to understand you and to believe in you and in believing in you to have eternal life. And that even if we don't ever understand all of you any more than we fully understand ourselves, you get it and you reveal it. And we can trust you in that, Lord. I thank you for the truth in all of that today. And I pray that this understanding as academic as it feels sometimes, will already begin to revolutionize our lives. For as we follow a God who loves and sacrifices and serves and submits and defers and points and encourages, and what a vital thing that is for us to follow in your son's magnificent name. Amen.